Hey everyone, it's Sarah, and this episode is going to be a different kind of story. It's one thing to recognize and navigate toxicity in the dating world, but what about when it's a family member you've known your whole life? And let's say you finally realize the best way forward is probably to cut this person out, but you can't completely remove them like you would an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. Mia reached out and asked me if her situation with her stepsister would be worth sharing, and I said, absolutely. Now, you might have noticed that this episode is chunky. I went back and forth about turning it into a two-parter, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to give you the whole thing. You can have the freedom to listen in chunks of time that work for you. I let Mia recall a lot of interactions, and she read many texts verbatim because I think the day-to-day interactions and how they compare to healthy dynamics are what's important to pay attention to here. We can all relate to some of these interactions, especially when it comes to dealing with passive-aggressive people, but this is a different level that spans many years, and I think this kind of episode was important to include. If you've continually struggled with someone in your family who just doesn't seem to have your back, or you're always walking on eggshells with them, they may or may not fit the same mold as Hillary in this story, But if they do, I really hope Mia's story and what she's learned will be affirming for you. As far as content warnings are concerned, this episode mentions suicidal ideation. There's also a brief mention of accidental animal death that I thought might be sensitive for some people. So I wanted to bring that up too. My name is Mia. I am a registered nurse working in the emergency department in Minneapolis. My dad met my stepmom, Janet, when I was 10 years old. I was the youngest of three. I had a a sister who's three years older than me and a brother who's nine years older than me. So we lived with our dad. He was going to school to become a registered nurse. Actually, he was already a registered nurse. He was back in school to become a nurse practitioner. And that is when he met my now stepmom, Janet. They were pretty serious pretty quickly. She and her two daughters... Allie and Hillary. Allie was eight and Hillary was four at the time. And they moved into our house about six months after my dad and Janet were dating. Then they got married on their one year anniversary. Janet was really nice at first, but I remember specifically when they were engaged that her dynamic started to change from her towards my siblings and me. She was just treating us a lot differently than her own children. I remember at one point before they got married, I had asked my dad if it would make a difference if I told him that I didn't want him to marry her. And I remember his response said, no, probably not. I guess that always stuck with me. My stepsister, Allie, was a year and a half younger than me. So by default, we were the chosen ones to share a bedroom because we were the closest in age. I remember a couple instances where my stepmom, Janet, would be putting Allie to bed doing their whole bedtime routine. I was on the other side of the room in my own bed and she didn't do anything. (laughs) She didn't do anything as far as like a bedtime routine with me. My dad was probably, you know, at school or studying or doing something else somewhere else. And I got to watch my stepsister get put to bed by her stepmom and, you know, say goodnight. For me, it might've been some type of perfunctory goodnight but there was definitely no affection there. And that pretty much carried on through my, through most of my childhood. Like I said, I was 10 at the time. So until adulthood, that is basically how she treated my siblings and me. 
I feel like I got the worst of it because I was the youngest of my siblings. So I was in the house longer. But I also remember one instance where Allie, I needed a new trapper keeper. You know, trapper keepers were pretty popular at the time. And I I told my stepmom about this. So what she did was she bought Allie a new trapper keeper and I got Allie's old trapper keeper. So just little things like that, that I think a series of little things kind of contributed to something much larger. And I know this story isn't really about Janet, but to explain the type of child that she raised or didn't raise, it kind of paints a little bit of background about Hillary and who Hillary was then and who she's become. So Hillary, like I said, she was four at the time that our parents met and she was always a challenging kid. She had an early diagnosis of ADHD. She was medicated pretty early, and she always used her diagnosis of ADHD and her medication as a crutch. If she was having a bad day where she was incredibly difficult and there were a lot of issues at home, she would say, I can't help it. It's my ADHD. Or, well, I didn't take my meds today. Therefore, I'm allowed to act this way. I don't even know if she even understood what ADHD was or how it presented. All I know is our parents kind of labeled her as like a problem child and a bad kid. And I think that she internalized that, but then also kind of deflected it like, oh, well, this is a diagnosis and this is nothing that I can help. So I feel like that has kind Mm -hmm. of contributed to later on where she's not responsible for her own actions. Side note, and I'm trying not to... I'm trying not to send you down a, a rabbit trail, but do you happen to remember an example when you say your parents kind of labeled her as sort of a, a problem child? Would you happen to have a, a memory or an example of maybe a statement they made or something that you feel instilled that idea? So I know that our family would develop, we would develop code words around her. So we would tiptoe around her and we would have code words that would kind of remind ourselves to kind of change our conversation or, you know, do something that wouldn't set her off. Not necessarily. I think that we we all shared in the frustration of dealing with her. It was constant. It was like, what is Hillary going to do today? How is she going to frustrate us? Or how is she going to throw a wrench into this situation? And she was aware of this. As an adult, absolutely. How much she was aware Mm -hmm. as a kid, I don't know. I feel like as an adult, she's constantly trying to compensate for the terrible kid that she was. And she wants to prove that she's not Mm. like a little shit anymore. (laughs) Remember, one of the code words was corn. Corn that you eat has ears, ears of corn. And that meant that Hillary has ears and she can hear what we're saying or pick up on it. So it basically meant to change the conversation. So if we were talking about something and then my dad would say, oh, I hear corn is really good this time of year. It was like an indication, we got to stop talking about this. So we would find a way to interpret corn into a random sentence. And that was the universal family code to this is going to set Hillary off. We got to zip it. One time she had some type of tantrum and she trashed my sister Mel's room. She thinks she stole a bunch of things. She, I don't know if she like colored on the wall, but I mean, her room was destroyed. 
And as a punishment, my dad and stepmom took her to the maximum security prison a couple miles away. They had one of the officers talk with her, basically saying, this is where bad kids go. And then they drove her home. Clearly, those scare tactics are like a huge no-no as far as like parenting is concerned now. But that's one of the tools they used was basically threatening to put her in jail. And she couldn't have been older than like maybe six at the time. Oh, yeah, she was young. Oh, I missed that detail when you. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so this is this is like a very small child's tantrum where she trashes my sister's room, and then they threaten her by scaring the crap out of her and taking her to the prison. Okay. As Hillary got older, she was, you know, I want to say like your average teenager, but I feel like that's all relative. I recall instances where she would ask me to buy her alcohol. And when I wouldn't, it was the nastiest things were said to me. I don't even remember how she justified berating me the way she was. But clearly after those instances, I wasn't going to be like, oh, you know what? You're right. I will buy you alcohol. Uh, She had a ton of boyfriends throughout high school and college. And all of those relationships ended pretty poorly. Later, she would tell me that they were abusive or that they had a drinking problem. And it was always really interesting to hear her say that because I feel like Hillary herself was developing a drinking problem, yet she labeled every failed relationship as he was abusive and he had a drinking problem. Her friend's situation was kind of the same. So-and-so is my ex-best friend, or this person did this to me, or this person didn't do this. Therefore, I was angry at them because they didn't meet my needs or fulfill my expectations. So she went through a lot of friends. She had two main friends that remained fairly constant throughout, you know, junior high and high school, but it was on again, off again, on again. There was like constantly fights and then reconciliation and then fights and then reconciliation. So her relationships were never really stable. To go into a little bit more about her own alcoholism, I think it's important to mention that her dad was an alcoholic. Her mom and dad divorced when she was one, so she doesn't remember them being together at all, and he was an abusive alcoholic. I don't believe he was physically abusive, but he was definitely verbally and emotionally abusive towards my stepmom. He would have periods of sobriety. So he might be sober for a year and then be drinking again and then sober for a couple months and then drinking. So I never really knew when he was sober or when he was drinking because I wasn't really involved with him. Hillary and Allie would go to their dad's house every weekend, but I rarely even saw him except at like drop off or pick up or whatever the situation was. The only things that I really knew about their dad were things that Hillary and Allie would tell me. Nine times out of 10, they were negative things. Oh, dad was drinking and said this or something negative that he did that uh, Hillary specifically didn't like or how he did something that made her feel bad. I remember her telling me, this is after she turned 21, he had taken her to the bar once. And I don't know if he was using her as like a sober ride, but anyway, he's drinking at the bar. He's got some friends at the bar and he's basically making sexual comments about her to 
other people at the bar kind of like objectifying her. Or I remember her telling me this situation and I was at loss for words. I said, I am, I am so sorry. I have no idea how to even deal with something like that. So there were a lot of times where I really did feel bad for Hillary and all the things that she had encountered with her parents' divorce and then with her dad being the way he is. So in August of 2019, her dad suddenly died. How old was she? 28 at the time. So my dad informs me that her father died. I end up finding out that he had been drinking. He was actually found dead on his friend's couch with a beer in his hand. I don't know if there was ever an autopsy done or what the official report was, but I think it was indicated that he had probably fallen at one point, developed a head bleed, didn't do anything about it because he was too intoxicated, and then basically laid down on the couch and passed away that way. So she was, of course, devastated. And I have no idea how to reach out to someone who had a family member die when their relationship wasn't good. I am not the kind of person that is going to be all sunshine and rainbows and say that person was such a great person when they weren't. But I'm also not going to speak poorly about someone who passed away. And I knew that Hillary was going to be really sensitive to that. So I remember, you know, reaching out, I'm here for you, I love you. And I remember being very, very careful with the wording or, you know, with what I said to her. And the only thing I said about her dad specifically was, I know that you and your dad had a complicated relationship. And that was it. I felt like, you know, that is a fact. Their relationship was complicated for better or for worse. And I'm, you know, I'm really sorry that he passed away and that I was always going to be there for her. A few weeks after her dad died, my brother got married. He had a very, very small wedding. There were five people at the wedding and I was not even one of them. However, after their small ceremony, they were having a dinner that more of the family was invited to. And my husband and I were invited to that. On the way to dinner to celebrate my brother and his new wife, uh, my husband and I learned that his cousin's two dogs were killed in a hot car while they were being watched by the dog sitter. We're on their way to a wedding celebration to celebrate my brother. We get this devastating news about dogs dying in a hot car, which is absolutely horrific. And here we are, we need to like, quickly, I guess, stop any of those emotions and celebrate my brother. Yay. You know, like, so we obviously didn't want to bring that grief to this celebration. So we did our best to act happy for my brother and to kind of put the dogs, you know, in the back of our mind. And I remember Hillary was there and we're talking to Hillary and everything was great or seemingly great. You know, we had a really nice dinner. At one point, the dogs did come up in some way. I don't remember how, but we did end up telling one or two people at the dinner. And I know Hillary overheard us talking about it. The next morning, she sends a group text to my husband and me. And I'm, I'm going to read that text to paint a better picture. She says, I want to apologize for walking out when you were talking about the death of your cousin and aunt's dogs. 
Steve, my husband, Steve said, it's really hard to be happy right now. And I had to walk away. That incident is incredibly sad. And I know Mia was not a fan of my father, but for many years, he was my best friend who taught me so many things. You really do not know anything about him or our relationship. You often compared him to your mother, whom I love and will always appreciate in my life. My father was a great man. You base him off of a divorced marriage and all the negative parts. The things that you have said to me about his death, making it seem like he was the worst. Thursday was the first time I saw both of you since he died, and neither of you said anything to me as if you had already forgotten. I wanted to barf when you said it was hard to be happy. I have been living in hell trying to be happy, trying to carry on my life, trying to think that I will never be happy again. So know that I was not trying to be rude, but rather screaming inside. Please do not respond to this. I just needed you to know how I felt. There's a lot to unpack there. I'll ask one, but I have several questions. Am I wrong? Was your comment, your husband's comment about hard to be happy right now, did that have something to do with the dogs and nothing to do with her dad? Yeah. Yeah. So she's making this about her dad, but it wasn't about her dad at all. And she knew that. Yes. So I had reached out a lot to her after her dad died. So her dad died August 27th. This wedding celebration was September 19th. So it was about three weeks later. And I had reached out to her a lot and called her and checked in with her. But I had not yet seen her in person. And I must have forgotten that this was the first time I would be seeing her in person since her dad died. So she's hung up on that. This is your first time seeing me in person and you didn't mention it. But it's also my brother's wedding celebration. We also got this news. That's where I was very confused because this is not her event. Correct. This is your brother's event. Yep. So she was basically upset that she wasn't getting the attention. So from her going to that incident is incredibly sad, referring to the dogs. And then she says, I know Mia was not a fan of my father. I didn't have an opinion on him because I didn't know him. She goes on to say, first of all, he was her best friend and he taught her so many things. He taught her how to drink. I, you know, I'll give her that. Aside from that, I don't really know their relationship. I only know the negative parts because those are the only parts that I heard. And that would be odd to talk about her best friend in that way to you. But anyway. And then things that you've said to me about his death made it seem like he was the worst. Like I mentioned earlier, the only thing I ever said about him specifically was, I know you had a complicated relationship. I'm so depressed. Why didn't you say anything? Once again, that was not the time or the place. I admit that it did slip my mind that this was the first time I saw her in person. Even though I had been reaching out to her via text and via phone calls these three weeks leading up to that. At the end of her text, she says, please do not respond to this, which is very typical of her. She basically is saying that she wants the opportunity to tell us off, but she doesn't want us to respond. She doesn't feel like we are entitled to have a response. Yeah, she's going to drop a bomb on you, but you can't defend yourself. Exactly. Or even apologize. So I got this text and I didn't respond to the text, but I remember calling her and I remember sobbing on her voicemail, like apologizing profusely. I am so sorry. I didn't know that you felt that way. I didn't realize that that was the first time I had seen you since your dad died. And I was so upset and I felt so bad that I made her feel this way. 
I couldn't get over like what I had done to her. And then I was like second guessing wow. myself. Am I a bad sister? Have I been checking in enough at all? Like, should I have run to her house when I found out that he died? Should I have been doing something more? I just, I felt like I, I clearly wasn't the sister that I wanted to be. After that voicemail, she didn't respond to me. So a couple days later, I sent her a text saying, I can't stop thinking about the text that you sent me. I desperately want to talk about it, but I also want to respect your feelings and space. Please let me know if and when you're willing to have a conversation. I love you. She responds to me the next morning. I drank myself into a very severe depression. I've pushed everyone away. Drew, her fiance, is taking me to see someone today. I respond, I'm so sorry, Hillary. I hope that you find talking to someone helpful. I'm thinking about you and I love you. She says, thank you. I'm so sorry for the message that was rude of me. I respond, you're not in a good place right now. You don't owe me any explanation. Just know that I'm here for you in any way that you need me to be. She responds, I just want you to know that I appreciate everything you've done for me. Calling to check in, sending me a card, noticing my pain. I love you. Sunday was a really bad day for me. What I said came out sideways and I'm sorry. I love you so much. So already she's contradicting everything she said to me in the previous text. You were there for me. You were very supportive. And I love you. Now that you're showing extreme remorse and basically you're, what's the way to, I'm trying to put this. Groveling. Yes. She has you where she wants you. Then she's giving you just enough, like taking just enough responsibility. Right. To keep you there. Yes. So that was in September. So in January, so we're looking at, I don't know, four months later, her sister, Allie, is in town. Her sister, Allie, was living in North Carolina with her husband, who was in the military. And at the time, she had one child, and he was eight months old. So Allie is in town, and she's in town to help Hillary go through their dad's house, go through all the belongings. This is the first time she's in town since he died, because she has a small child. At one point, Allery and Hillary are both at my house, and I have a kid also, and my daughter was two. I think she was two years old. And so Allie and Hillary are over at my house at some point during this long weekend, and they get in a fight over their dad's things or, you know, who has the right to what. And Hillary ends up screaming that she's so depressed she wants to kill herself. Allie is really distraught hearing that and says that she is going to call 911 if Hillary is serious. I then jump in and I encourage Allie to call 911. I said, yeah, that's what you do. If someone is threatening suicide, you call 911 and you get them help. I should mention that, you know, I mentioned, you know, when I introduced myself that I am an ER nurse. So I work in the emergency department. I see people daily that come in with suicidal ideation. It is really important to take seriously, you know, regardless how many threats they've made or how many attempts they've made, that you always take it seriously until you at least that you get more of the story or you get collateral information, which is information that you get from another family member. Being suicidal does not automatically mean that you'll be put on a 72-hour hold. 
a 72 hour hold is a special hold that they will put someone on if they're scared that they're a threat to themselves or someone mm-hmm. else. And if they are not agreeing to be voluntary, we always prefer that people are voluntary. But then if they say, I want to go and they're still you know, suicidal and there's still that risk, then that's when a 72 hour hold would come into place. That being said, a 72 hour hold can really be terminated at any time. You don't have to carry out the full 72 hours. If at some point during those 72 hours, you agree to be voluntary, they can drop the hold. If let's say you meet with psychiatry, psychiatry doesn't feel the hold is valid, or if you make a really solid safety plan, that hold can be terminated. It's not like it's an automatic, you're in jail 72 hours, and this is your sentence. It's, it doesn't work that way at all. So I feel like giving that information is pretty relevant going into the texts from Hillary that I'm about to read. I think this was the day after 911 was called on her. The cops did actually come to my house. Hillary had stormed off and walked somewhere. I don't know where she walked, but this is, you know, we live in Minnesota and this was January. I remember she didn't have a jacket. Clearly she's very, she's having a mental health crisis and we don't know how to help her. So we get the cops involved. So the cops come to the house. She denies being suicidal. And ultimately, my older sister, Mel, runs after her. And the cops agree to not take her to the hospital as long as Mel stays with her and keeps her safe. So Mel basically takes her to like an empty parking lot and they talk about it. And then Hillary's fiance ends up meeting them at this parking lot and he takes over from there. The next morning, Hillary sends me a text saying, you probably shouldn't be a nurse if this is how you treat someone you love. My response, I'm sorry you're hurting. I'm sorry you feel the need to blame others. I'm sorry you felt the decision to get the cops involved was inappropriate but I'm not sorry for caring about your safety. I love you. And someday I hope that you realize that we're only trying to help. I am always acting out of love for you, even if you may not see it. So her response, calling the cops made this situation a thousand times worse. If you could even listen to me, you would understand why. I did not say I was going to kill myself. I said I wanted to die. If you had asked me if I was going to kill myself, I would have said no. You have no idea what you put me through by calling the cops. If you have never been in a hold, you cannot say that you did the right thing by calling. Would you like to be locked up against your will for three days away from your family? Is that what makes you happy and love yourself? I need you to acknowledge that you made the wrong call by having Allie call 911. I don't respond to those texts. So several hours later, she follows up with, Someday, you're going to lose someone close to you or go through something traumatic. You may not admit it, but you will be depressed and at a loss for words for how you're feeling. I will be there for you, to hold you, to tell you I love you, to show you how much you mean to me. Maybe then you will realize that calling the cops on me was not the right choice. I know you think you made the right call, and I know that you care about me. This morning, I was willing to work through that, but instead, you got upset with me, I'm done reaching out, but I hope that you put yourself in my shoes sooner than later. I love you and I want to work through this because I need my family now more than ever. 
I think I had forgotten to mention that I think maybe before those that first text, we did end up talking on the phone and I would not admit that calling the cops was the wrong choice. She will never accept the whole let's agree to disagree. Like I need to surrender. I need to admit that I was wrong. Sometimes it's even a matter of just lying and saying, you know what? Yep, you're right. I was wrong just so we can drop it. But even then, if I said something like that, she would say, you're just saying that. It's a lose-lose situation. That was really hard to get through. And I don't really remember how all of that was resolved, but it probably took a while to get her to really open up again. So this is January of 2020. We all know what happened in March of 2020. The world shut down and suddenly my job as an ER nurse, which is always difficult, has suddenly become a nightmare. So I am, you know, living this nightmare, dealing with COVID, dealing with not enough masks, not enough resources. We have no idea what this virus is going to bring. So my sister, Mel, was working in, so this is my older sister, my, my real sister, uh, Mel. She was working in a liquor store at the time. And she had had like a third hand exposure. So, you know, she's wearing a mask in the liquor store where she works. And her coworker had a friend who had a friend who tested positive for COVID. It was several people removed. Around that time, Mel went over to Hillary's house to hang out with Hillary and her fiance, Drew. Mel's fiance, Jack, is friends with Hillary's fiance, Drew. They went over there to hang out outside, socially distanced. I think that they may have been like in the garage or in the open garage, and Hillary refused to come outside. Later, Mel learned that Hillary refused to come outside because of Mel's exposure. Hillary was sending Mel these horrible texts saying, I can't believe you would expose my fiance and me like that. You knew that you had been exposed and came over anyway. So the two of them are going back and forth via text talking about, well, if this person was exposed this day and then this many days have passed we're still learning like all the different the period of incubation and when would I be showing symptoms and we didn't we weren't testing at the time because tests weren't available so everyone was just kind of winging it my sister was so vigilant about COVID that she was like you know wiping down her groceries with disinfectant wipes I mean so that's how serious she took COVID and if she actually felt that she was a risk and that she would be exposing other people, she would never have gone over to Hillary's house. But this argument went in circles. That fight probably lasted or they weren't talking for at least a couple months. In the process, we find out that Hillary has been going to the bars with her friends, which is a much bigger exposure than anyone's third hand exposure. That's the summer of 2020. And at the end of the summer, on August 30th, our mom dies. This is not Hillary's mom. This is the mom that I share with my older brother and sister. 
I would say my mom suffered with a lot of mental illness and she was never in very good health. And Hillary would at family gatherings when they would both be there, Hillary was really nice to my mom and would help like take care of her. My mom's a vulnerable adult and Hillary was always like went out of her way to be nice to my mom. And that was always really nice and appreciated. I think that's important to mention that Hillary had a very different relationship with my mom than I did with her dad. In a year span, we've now both lost a parent. It's actually my mom died a year and three days after her dad died. The following year after my mom died, I remember Hillary saying that she was... So my mom, I think, went into the ICU on maybe August 26th, and she passed away on the 30th. And I remember Hillary telling me that she was hoping that my mom didn't pass away on August 27th because that was her dad's day. I also want to mention that, so our mom died in August, in January on my mom's birthday. So this is our first birthday without her. Hillary reaches out to me saying, you know, thinking about you on your mom's birthday, which is really nice. She's always been really good about reaching out on specific dates, seeing how we're doing. And then I felt bad because I did not know when her dad's birthday was. And I was like, oh my gosh, have I missed birthdays since he's been gone? And what kind of sister have I been to her? I had responded to her thinking about you text as, I want to apologize if I wasn't there for you enough when your dad died. Just know that I'm always here for you, even when it seems like I am preoccupied with my own life. You said that to Hillary. I said that to Hillary. Her sentiments are making me feel like, did I offer her enough when her dad died? She says, I've grown a lot over the past few years, and I've learned a lot about myself. And one thing I learned is that I often assume that people can read my very unpredictable mind. I'm working on that. And one thing I know for sure is that you love me and you did support me when my dad passed. And I hope I've been there for you, too. So this is really one of like the one of the few instances where she seems to have some self-reflection. But once again, she's confirming that I was there for her. Unfortunately, I am skeptical of the motives, but it is an interesting statement for her to make. Oh, of course. Always. In December of 2019, so this was shortly before her suicidal statements, Hillary gets engaged to her boyfriend, Drew. And once again... Okay, so we're backing up just a little bit. Yeah, just to talk about her wedding and her wedding preparing. So she and Drew were engaged in December 2019. Hillary and Drew planned their wedding for September of 2021. I think COVID probably delayed things a little bit, but they also wanted a lot of time to prepare Hillary is the kind of person that, you know, puts so much effort into things, plans every single detail. She's, you know, the kind of girl that's like, oh, I've been planning my wedding since I was 10 years old, something like that. So she put a ton of work into this. She was very organized and really proud of all the work that she was doing and how she was organizing it. She sent out a save the date for her wedding. So her wedding date happened to be on Mel and Jack's anniversary, like the anniversary of them dating. She didn't know that. And it's fine. So Mel doesn't even get mad. Her wedding date is still pending. Mel's wedding date is still pending because she's in school. A lot of things going on. And then, of course, after our mom died, she's like, how can I plan a wedding now? 
So Drew and Mel's fiance, Jack, are really good friends. And when Hillary sent out the save the date, Mel commented, wow, that sounds like a really great day for love because that's the day that Jack and I had our first date. After that comment, Hillary was constantly focused. Mel is making this about herself. Mel is constantly reminding me that this is her and Jack's anniversary. Allie at the time, so this is her real sister. Allie at the time is living in Germany with her husband in the military. And because of COVID, because of having a small child, she just can't make it work to fly in for the wedding. She didn't know because I think that international travel was still really iffy and you might end up if you got COVID then you would have to be stuck until you tested negative before flying back. So she says, I can't risk doing any of that. So she doesn't come. Other bridesmaids were coworkers. So there were just some women that she worked with. I don't know how close she was with them, but I do remember her venting to me about how they weren't planning the shower the way she wanted them to, or not the shower, the bachelorette party. You know, she was like, oh, well, they haven't even started planning and I'm going to have to plan my own bachelorette party. And she was so angry about it. The important thing to know about her bridesmaids was that they were all married and had very small children. (laughs) When you have small kids, it's really hard to plan going to the bathroom by yourself, let alone planning someone else's bachelorette party. So she had those type of expectations and was constantly venting to me about how they were not fulfilling their responsibility as bridesmaids. Fortunately, I actually had to work the weekend of her bachelorette party. And in the summer, it's incredibly hard to get off of work. I knew that she was going to be incredibly upset with me if I did not go to her bachelorette party. So I tried to think of a way that I could do something else to make it so she wasn't super angry at me. So what I did was, I want to say this was actually four to six weeks before her bachelorette party. I took her on a mini road trip to an Airbnb an hour and a half away. On the way, we got pedicures. We stayed at an Airbnb. We just had fun in this like small riverside town Did I really want to spend my money or time doing that? Absolutely not. But I was willing to make that sacrifice of time and money because I didn't want to get the negative feedback that I would have gotten otherwise. So you're already moving mountains around her. Exactly. I had a friend at work who was also planning her own wedding. Hillary's wedding was scheduled for September. And my friend at work was getting married the following April. But my friend at work was telling me these really cool things that she was doing for her wedding. She had mentioned that she had bought these PDFs on Etsy for signage, table assignments, any type of signage that you would have for a wedding. The graphics were already done and all you had to do was edit them. I thought that was a really cool idea and a way to maybe save yourself some work in the long run. So I'm telling Hillary about this really cool idea that my friend is doing and how my friend is so crazy because she has the seating assignment already figured out and it's 10 months in advance. But she's got some really good ideas. So I'm sharing them with Hillary saying like, hey, maybe you should check out Etsy and it can give you some ideas for your own signage, etc. She got really angry because I was giving her unsolicited advice. 
she sends me a text, still mad at me. And I said, who said I was mad at you? And she says, me, you didn't respond to my text. And I write, I had a lot going on. And she says, well, I'm an extremely insecure person. And when people offer help, I take it as I'm not doing good enough. I'm sorry. I respond, that's fine. You do you. Just know that going forward, I'm only helping and happy to when you specifically ask for it. She responds, okay, well, just because I ask you not to tell me about other people's weddings and unwanted advice doesn't mean you can't ask me how I'm doing. But whatever, Mia, it's been one of the most stressful weeks. And if that's how you're going to be, fine. I respond, Hillary, I can't do anything without you misinterpreting my actions. I have made myself available to you and I've tried to help, but you've made it very clear that you don't need it. You know that I'm happy to help, so you just need to let me know if and when you need it. And then she responds, no, Mia, I'm simply just asking you not to give me advice without me asking for it. It would be nice if you still checked in on me while I'm planning my wedding. I respond, the advice to tell people to keep their speeches short. That's another thing. That is really the only wedding advice that I give anyone is tell people to keep the speeches short because my friends still joke that my dad's speech was the punchline of my wedding because it was like 45 minutes. That's hilarious because I was in a wedding where the father of the bride spoke for 45 minutes and I have, that has stuck with me ever since. And I tell everyone, tell them to keep it at five minutes because it'll still end up 10 or 15 or 20. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. That was literally that I agree. That was advice. I said, tell them to keep it short, but that's the only advice that I gave her. So I had said the advice to tell people to keep speeches short What other advice have I given? I have repeatedly told you to do what you want because it's your wedding and your opinion is the only one that matters. She says, you legit went on for half hour telling me different things. That's what I had the problem with. I told you that. I've had the week from hell and I am so close to calling the wedding off. So please do not argue with me right now. All I am asking is for you to not give me advice unless I ask for it. She later mentions that she doesn't have space in her brain to continue being upset. So now she's ruminating about this and she's saying, I don't have space in my brain to obsess over you being upset with me. I think the two most contradictory statements in all of that was when she says, I'm extremely insecure. And when I, when people offer help, I take it as that I'm not doing good enough. And then I said that I'm happy to help. And then she says, no, you said you'll no longer check in on me or ask me if I need help. There's a difference. She's contradicting herself and she's putting you through impossible hoops that it's do this, but don't do that thing I just told you to do. Do it differently. Right. No, don't do it the way that you did it. There's, it's almost like she has this filter stuck in her brain where it doesn't matter what you say. She's going to take it one way and then turn it on you and say, no, don't do it that way. Even if you didn't do it that way. Yeah. There wasn't a ton of drama at the wedding itself, with the exception of, I do recall at one point during the reception that she got in a fight with one of her aunts and her aunt left. I also remember talking to her cousins at one point. So this is, you know, this is on her mom's side. So they're kind of my cousins too, I guess, but I've never really been close to them. And I remember talking to her cousins at one point And they had both flown in from San Diego. 
I remember them mentioning they were literally in town for maybe 24 hours. And I said, wow, that's really, that's a really quick trip. They had mentioned that Hillary would be really upset if they hadn't made the effort to come. That in itself is kind of showing how she's almost instilled this fear in a lot of people that she's connected with that you don't want to upset her. Another cousin of hers had mentioned that he wasn't able to come because he had a prior engagement. So then she's questioning him about it. Well, did you have those plans before X date, like the date that she sent out her save the dates? He said, yeah, actually I did. So this is a cousin. I mean, she has a lot of cousins on her mom's side. Her mom was one of five. She's not even really close to any of those cousins or at least not this specific cousin. So why his attendance was so important to her, I'm not really sure. But just the fact that someone chose a different event over her event was triggering for her. While all of Hillary's wedding planning is going on, Mel is planning her own wedding. This is the fall of 2021. Mel has a wedding date and a wedding venue, but doesn't actually start planning her wedding until May. Mel is still grieving very deeply for our mom, and she's trying to get through her last semester of school. She hardly has time to grieve. She's trying to keep her head above water. She's a perfectionist when it comes to school. So she's getting, you know, two, three hours of sleep, staying up late, working on these papers, and literally has no time to think about the wedding. So finally, she finishes a semester, she graduates, and now she's able to think about the wedding. Mel has no idea how to plan a wedding. So she's got help coming at all different angles. My stepmom is helping her secure the venue. I'm helping her with invitations. I'm addressing the invitations. I helped her design them. I actually even wrote a poem as the invite for the invitations. I created a Google spreadsheet that she could contribute to, and we're organizing the guest list and all these have all these different tabs. I'm making suggestions. I'm helping her with decor. I'm coordinating with her future mother-in-law. This clearly takes a village. Most people would be willing to do this. We're willing to do this for Mel just because Mel is a good person. She deserves it. And we all know that she needs help. But we can't just like watch her struggle. A ton of us are coming together to help Mel through all of this wedding planning. And her wedding is scheduled for three weeks after Hillary's wedding. Hillary insists on hosting Mel's wedding shower. She wants to do so two weeks after her own wedding and a week before Mel's wedding. Of course, I am Mel's only full-blooded sister. Mel and I are really close, and I really wanted the honor to throw my sister a wedding shower. But Hillary, I have a few texts that they're from May of 2021, where she's talking about how she wants to throw Mel the shower. She says, because I had mentioned, are you sure you want to do this? This is literally right after you get married. Do you want this extra stress in your life? And she says, this is the stuff that I love and I'll have two weeks and I'll be able to use things we get from our registry. And then she says, you can totally be a co-host, someone I can bounce ideas off of and help set up. Later, I say, I'm totally willing to plan Mel's shower. You have enough to think about with your own wedding. And she responds, 
I would really like to host since it's my first time being able to do so, if that's okay. She's not wanting to host because she wants to do this for Mel. She wants to host because number one, she gets to use things from her registry. And number two, she gets to show off her house and it's her first time that she gets to host. And she basically wants the attention that comes with being the host. Look at my house that we're remodeling. Look at my nice dishes that I just got for my wedding. She wants to host for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. I had warned Mel many times, do not let her host. She will hold this over you. Mel is a people pleaser. Mel doesn't like confrontation. She wouldn't know how to tell Hillary, I'm sorry, I just can't. Like, I just don't feel comfortable. I was even communicating with one of Mel's best friends and doing research about alternative venues. I felt like if all of a sudden we switched the venue to my house, that Hillary would take it very personally. But maybe if we switched it to a neutral venue, we could say we did it because we didn't want to put that responsibility on Hillary after her own wedding. That doesn't ever end up happening. And Mel never has the guts to tell Hillary, no, I don't want you hosting. I think it's also important to mention that Mel has very little expectations. She doesn't know what a wedding shower should or shouldn't include. She is not high maintenance at all. She was okay not even having a wedding shower at all. That doesn't mean anything to her. She's like, I don't even need gifts or things at my wedding. She doesn't even like registering because she feels like that's asking for stuff. And that's just not who she is. So this entire time, people are saying like, you should have this. People want to get you gifts. You want them to get you something that you want, not something random. So people want you to register. So Mel is actually registering because other people want her to register. So she's like the opposite of Hillary. Mel didn't really want to do a bachelorette party because she didn't want, you know, people to feel like that financial burden, especially the one that she felt for Hillary. So she and her fiance, Jack, decided to do just a backyard barbecue and it would be a bachelorette bachelor party. They were just going to do something really low key and casual. And Hillary had asked Mel how she could help out. Mel responded, oh, well, if you have any yard games, bring them over. Mel sent her a couple links to some different games that she had found on Amazon. She's like, oh, I thought that these would kind of be fun too, you know. But, you know, don't stress out about it. You've got other things going on. Honestly, I just want to hang out in the backyard. Hillary calls me venting to me. This is probably a week after her own wedding and a week before the barbecue. So Hillary calls me and she's venting to me about how stressed she is. She says, my house is a disaster. There's wedding gifts everywhere. She says, we're learning a new computer system at work. They just had to put Drew's cat down. She is still working on planning Mel's wedding shower. And now Mel has asked her to provide games for the barbecue. She goes on to say that Mel has all these expectations and that Hillary is feeling so overwhelmed that she's asking me to step in and take on some of the game planning for the barbecue. I don't think it's that big of a deal because lawn games aren't that big of a deal. And I know that Mel already has plenty of lawn games. She goes to a lot of like outdoor festivals and she has things that can entertain themselves. And people don't necessarily need lawn games in order to have fun. So anyway, I'm downplaying it and I'm saying, Hillary, 
it's not a big deal. Focus on yourself. Focus on your post-wedding stuff. Focus on the shower. Focus on your work. Mel's barbecue will turn out just fine, even if you do nothing for it. She continues to escalate about how stressed out she is. And I stop her and I said, I don't want to be part of your pity party. And I hung up. This is followed by two really nasty voicemails, which were each about three minutes long. I don't know if she got cut off at some point. It's basically six minutes worth of voicemails. I don't want to listen to them because I don't feel like they're going to be helpful. But I did forward them to Mel. She listened to them and I said, on a scale of zero to 10, how mean are they? And she said, for Hillary, probably a seven. I deleted the voicemails before I listened to them because I had an idea of what was in them and I just felt like that wasn't going to be helpful for me or my mental health. Hillary then sent me a text saying, I'm sorry that I want Mel's events to be what she wants and not what you think she wants. I know my sister really well. I feel like it's pretty safe to say that I know what she wants and doesn't want. And the number one thing she doesn't want is for people to be stressed out at her expense. Throughout her entire wedding planning, she was constantly saying, oh, only if it's not too much trouble. Or I I don't want you to have to go out and buy things. Do you have this? No, but like only if you're comfortable doing that constantly. It's okay to be a little selfish when you're planning your wedding. And Mel was like the exact opposite. She didn't want to inconvenience anyone at any point in time. At the barbecue, we coexisted. We may have said a couple words to each other, but for the most part, we were talking with other people. I had to leave the barbecue early because my daughter and I were going on a trip to Seattle the next day. My daughter's daycare was closed, so I had to take off work because her daycare was closed. And I figured, well, if I'm going to take off work, let's go somewhere. So I took my daughter to Seattle to spend some time with my husband's family out there. I get back a couple days before the wedding shower that Hillary has planned. While I'm in Seattle, I had sent Hillary a text saying, hey, I'm working on a Jeopardy game for the shower. Just wanted to let you know. And she's really upset about that. She said something like, I wish I would have known that you were doing this. I thought that you weren't interested in helping. I said, okay, no, no problem. We won't do the Jeopardy. If she had planned out an entire timeline for the shower, I didn't want to throw a wrench in that. It wasn't a big deal. So I just I stopped planning the Jeopardy game and that's fine. I get home from Seattle. I send her a text saying like, hey, you want me to show up early to the shower to help set up? And she doesn't respond. I decide that I will show up early, but not too early. I think that the shower was maybe at 11 o'clock and I decide that I'm going to show up around 1030 just, you know, to be able to help with some final touches, but not to take on too much of it. I decide to bring my daughter, who is four at the time. So I decide to bring my daughter to the shower kind of as a buffer. Now, because I'm running on toddler time, I'm late. By wanting to be there at 1030, I'm late. So I end up getting there at maybe 1050. So I'm only 10 minutes early, which for a lot of people is considered on time. For me, that's crazy early. (laughs) Right. So I show up 10 minutes early and she's running around the house doing stuff and she sees me and I can tell that she's still super angry at me. And she says, 
I thought that you'd get the hint when I didn't respond to your text. By not responding to my text about, should I show up early? That was supposed to be a message in itself to not come early. So she's mad at me for showing up a whole whopping 10 minutes early. And then she says, I wish I would have known that Eleanor was coming. Eleanor is my daughter. I wish I would have known Eleanor was coming because I have the exact number of plates I need. And I kind of laugh because my kid doesn't really eat much. If anything, she's like a little bird. And I said, well, good thing Eleanor hardly eats. She can share food off of my plate. So if she's so concerned about like having the, maybe she didn't register for enough plates. That's what I'm thinking. So I'm like a toddler can eat off of someone else's plate. They don't need a setting. They don't even need a chair. Exactly. And I know that Mel would have wanted my daughter to be there. So she's really upset about that. So I set Eleanor down on the couch and then I'm like setting some stuff down so I can start, you know, helping. Then Hillary says, can I talk to you outside? So I say, yeah, sure. Hillary brings me outside on her front step and starts berating me. I think she starts off by saying, I am so pissed at you. And I respond, yeah, I know. She goes on about the pity party comment and how that was so rude. And honestly, it was such a heated moment that a lot of the details of this conversation have escaped me, which is interesting considering this was kind of a pivotal moment in our relationship. But I do recall her saying she didn't want anything to do with me and she didn't want me in her life and she never wanted me to talk to her again. At this point, I had already decided having a relationship with Hillary is too stressful. I'm tired of walking on eggshells. The negative things in our relationship overshadow any positive things that our relationship might hold. And so I basically have decided that once Mel's wedding is over, I'm cutting ties with Hillary. But there's a time and a place for everything. And I don't think ending my relationship with my stepsister right before a family member's wedding is a good idea. Hillary, on the other hand, thinks it is a perfectly acceptable time to pick this fight now five minutes before the wedding shower that she's hosting. So she tells me she never wants to see me again. And I say, you know what? That's fine by me. I was planning on cutting you off after Mel's wedding. I guess it's going to happen now. I go inside. I get Eleanor, I run back outside and I start getting in my car. I'm buckling Eleanor into her car seat and I am shaking. So it's taking me longer to buckle her into the car seat because I am visibly shaking with anger. My stepmom, Janet, runs after me and says, you have to stay. Mel would want you to stay. And I said, how can I stay in Hillary's house after Hillary just said those things to me? And I said, Hillary is toxic. She is a toxic person and I don't want her near me or my family. I then get in my car and start driving home. And it's about a 40 minute drive home. And I call Mel. And of course, Mel is at her house 20 minutes away and hasn't even left her house yet for the shower, which is typical Mel fashion, late for everything, including her own wedding shower. I call Mel and I'm in tears. And I say, I'm sorry, I will not be at your shower. I can't do it. I let her know what Hillary has done and what she has said to me. And now I have Mel crying on the phone and I'm crying. And I said, I love you so much, but I just can't put this aside. If someone else were hosting, I could easily just grit and bear it and ignore Hillary. But 
I'm not going to be in Hillary's house after Hillary has said those things and I'm just going to what, sit and take it. I'm apologizing profusely. I'm crying. Mel is regretting not saying anything to Hillary sooner about her hosting. And now Mel doesn't even want to go to her own wedding shower. Mel ends up going to her shower. One of her really good friends realized what's happened. She had saw me coming to the shower. And then once her friend left briefly, came back to the shower, and she saw that it wasn't there, and she knew that something had happened. So she says to Hillary, this will not be happening. Whatever drama that she's caused, Hillary needs to stop it now. Hillary's response was, what, am I not allowed to express my feelings? Since my sister friend has now said cutting her behavior off, now that friend has been moved from basically like friend to enemy because no one can be neutral with her. If you are a neutral party with Hillary, you're against her. I think once before Mel's wedding, my sister's friend asked Hillary how married life was. Hillary's response was, it will be better once all of this is over, referring to Mel's wedding. At the end of Mel's shower, Hillary was drunk. She was aggressively taking photos of people, you know, oh, get together and try to, you know, being forceful about it. She can be pretty aggressive, especially when she's drunk. She kept turning towards Mel, asking Mel if she was having a good time. Mel, the entire time, is so upset at all of these events. She's so upset that the one person she wanted to be there the most wasn't there because of the host. And so here she is saying, yeah, I'm having a great time because she knows that if she tells the truth, she's not going to have a good outcome. On the day of Mel's wedding, Hillary and I are basically just coexisting. We're in the same place at the same time, but we're not interacting. At one point, she was interacting with Eleanor, and it made me really uncomfortable because I don't want someone like her to be around my child. And I had no idea what was going to happen, if things were going to escalate between Hillary and me, because clearly Hillary does not know when it is or isn't appropriate to confront people. During the speeches at Mel's wedding, Hillary got up and left, then was venting to another one of Mel's best friends about how Mel was making everything about her on the day of her own wedding. Hillary was also upset that so many people came together to make Mel's wedding possible. I probably did more for Mel's wedding than Mel did, but that's just because I've been married myself. I have helped other friends in their weddings. I just have a better idea of what needs to be done for a wedding. And also Mel started planning her wedding in May for an October wedding, whereas Hillary had been planning her wedding since she was a kid. And scaring everyone off, side note. And scaring everyone off. Anytime someone wanted to help, Mel was clearly welcoming to any and all help she could get because she was absolutely clueless. And she will admit that she was clueless. At the end of the wedding reception at Mel's wedding, Hillary drunkenly came up to me. She threw her arms around me and said, I'm sorry, I've been a bitch. I pried her arms off of me and I said, Hillary, I don't want to engage with you. And I walked away. At the time, my husband, Steve, had braces. So he had braces for like a six-month period of time. And that was during their weddings. 
I remember he forgot one of his retainers. He had like a he had top braces and a bottom retainer, and he forgot the bottom retainer at the wedding reception. So my stepmom ended up reaching out to him, and he was going to pick it up at their house the next day. The next morning, the morning after Mel's wedding, Hillary sends my husband a text saying, I feel so bad for you. My husband responds, oh, it's really not that bad. I only have braces for six months, so it's not really a big deal. I find this hysterical. And I tell him, I said, you know that she's not referring to you having braces. And he's like, of course I know, but I don't want to give her the satisfaction of responding or either ignoring or responding in a way that she wants. So the fact that she's trying to engage with my husband in a negative way to try to get him against me is so many levels of inappropriate. I, I, I can't believe it. I even remember when my daughter was really young, uh, one of my friends recommended that I read this book called How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids. It's a great book, but I don't like the title of it because I feel like it doesn't paint a good picture of what the book is about. It sounds like it's just going to be people, you know, trash talking their husbands when really it's a book about co-parenting and how to co-parent to the best of your ability. I feel like every new parent should read it. And I feel like it's just a really good way of division of labor and how to communicate and how to raise your kids in a peaceful household. And it's not necessarily about throwing your husband under the bus. So I was reading that book and I remember it sitting on, it was either with my nightstand or like the coffee table or at some point, I had a couple family members that had asked me if Steve and I were doing okay around that same time. I thought that that was really weird because Steve and I don't really, we, we've never really had like a big fight. We disagree, but everything's been fine. And I'm like, why are these family members asking us if our marriage is okay? And I realized it's because Hillary saw this book at my house and started to spread rumors that our marriage was on the rocks. Hillary's wedding was in September. Mel's wedding was in October. In November was my daughter's birthday. I had a small family party. I did not invite Hillary. My stepmom, Janet, brought a gift to the party from Hillary. And, you know, I opened it and, you know, it was like, I don't remember exactly what it was. I think it was like a unicorn blanket and a couple other things. And I was like, wow, this is a really nice gesture. When I was sending out thank yous, I sent it from my daughter's point of view. You know, thanks, Aunt Hillary, for the gift. This is really fun. That's it. A year later, this is November 2022. This is just last year. The same thing happens. I have a small family gathering for my daughter to celebrate her birthday. I have still not talked to Hillary. We're opening up gifts. And at the end of the party, I am making sure I'm like, oh, are there any other gifts that I'm missing? And then my stepmom, Janet, hands over this gift and I'm reaching for it. And in advance, I already had decided if I get a gift from Hillary for my daughter, I will not accept it. I had wished that I had done the same thing the previous year. This year, I've had a whole year to reflect and I don't want to accept it because especially when it comes to someone like Hillary, there's no such thing as a free gift. I know that she's going to use this as some type of emotional ammunition. I'm not interested in playing that game. I mean, I've been, I see a therapist twice a month. I had even like gone through this scenario with my therapist about not accepting this gift. So Janet hands me this gift and I say, who is it from? And she says, oh, it's from Hillary. 
and I stop with the gift in my hand. It's a little gift bag. My daughter starts pulling the tissue paper out of the bag already. And I tell her to stop and I hand back the gift and I say, I'm sorry, I can't accept this. And Janet says, what? Are you serious? And I said, yeah, I don't feel comfortable accepting it. So please return it to her. Otherwise, I'm just going to donate it. She takes the bag back. And within 30 seconds, she has dragged my dad out of the house and they are halfway down the block in their car. I have not spoken directly to my stepmom since. And this is six months later. I think it was like at least a month before speaking to my dad. Not that my dad, my dad just doesn't reach out a lot. So I don't think it had anything to do with that. But I know that Janet was incredibly upset that I refused her daughter's gift. And I remember thinking, did I do the right thing? Am I in the wrong? I was even Googling and looking at different forums about like accepting a gift from estranged relatives and like the do's and don'ts. And I I basically wanted to find evidence that I did the right thing. I had talked to Mel about it and Mel said, well, I wouldn't have done that. And I'm thinking, well, you're a people pleaser, first of all. Secondly, I mean, Mel said, while she wouldn't have done that, she supports that I did that and that I need to make the decisions that I find appropriate for me and my family. I was literally trying to find validation on the internet. In my eyes, I mean, I can see how in the moment you're panicking and thinking, oh crap, what have I done? But you weren't refusing a gift. You were refusing everything it represented because it's not just a gift. And that's something your stepmom does not understand. Right. So on the outside, it can be easy to think why on earth, but there's so much more to this gift. It's not a gift. It's a hook. It is a hook. And you're saying no more hooks. Right. So I think that I've been really, you know, the boundaries that I have set have basically been no contact boundaries. When it comes to some things, I'm like an all or nothing person. I can't just say, oh, well, I'm going to see her at family functions or I'm going to say this, but not this. It's too complicated. And I also don't want to confuse my daughter. And I don't want her to possibly be roped into the drama that Hillary causes constantly. Hillary will take a situation that is just any type of like normal situation and she will turn it into something it's not. I just wanted to avoid that altogether. And as much as I had planned ahead to refuse the gift, it was so hard to do. It was incredibly difficult to actually carry out. I remember it it was almost like it was happening in slow motion where I had the gift in my hand and in my head, I'm thinking, you have to refuse this. You rehearsed this. You have to refuse this. Give it back and say this. And it was still so hard to actually do it. It was so much easier rehearsed in my head than it was to actually do. After they left and had stormed out, I remember once again, I'm like shaking with that adrenaline. I remember running into my bedroom and I typed out in a note on my phone, I typed out the conversation verbatim so I would remember it exactly as it is. So when people asked me what had happened, I would say, this is exactly what happened. (laughs) And it was fresh in my mind. I wanted to justify that I didn't say it in a rude way. I said, I don't feel comfortable accepting this gift. That is basically where my relationship with her is right now. 
I know that you've often asked a lot of your other people that you have spoken with on your podcast about their aha moment or, you know, the moment that they realized that this relationship was bad or toxic or they needed to get out. And for me, I don't think it was any specific moment. It was just a series of a lot of little things, not just my own relationship with her, but seeing her relationship with other people. I was thinking back to her husband's sisters, how she doesn't get along with any of them. I was thinking back to all her ex-boyfriends, how they all wronged her or did something to her in some way. Her friends from childhood, most of which she's not friends with anymore, her coworkers who weren't throwing her the bachelorette party that she wanted. And I'm thinking, wow, she either has really bad taste in friends and like family men or like has been getting herself into these like really bad situations. But there's really only one common denominator in all of this. And it's her. It all started to make sense that she's always the victim, that people are doing things to her. I did take some notes about the signs of toxic people. And I feel like when I tell people about Hillary, the word toxic always comes back because I feel like that is probably the single best word to describe her, that she takes any given situation and she makes it toxic. Toxic people don't take responsibility for their own actions. They like to point fingers. They don't apologize even when they're wrong. They like to create chaos. They play the victim even when they're not. They intimidate and bully, and they act out of fear and insecurity. She's even mentioned that she was acting out of insecurity. I was just going to say she mentioned that herself. So a vulnerable narcissist. So they're hypersensitive to criticism. They have the tendency to feel insecure and inadequate. They may present themselves as shy, anxious, or depressed. And they may use self-pity as a way of seeking attention. Interesting. And notice how she always said, I'm at the end of the end of my rope. I can only focus on this. I don't have the capacity for this. I just wish I was dead. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry, but I know you talk a lot about gaslighting on your show and how some people are, you know, made to seem like they are in the wrong and she definitely has done a lot of gaslighting where she's treating me so poorly. And then like, you know, you got those signs of like love bombing where it doesn't even necessarily have to be that romantic type of love bombing. But then she says, oh, I love you. and You're doing so good. And then you hurt me. You hurt me. You hurt me. Why are you doing this? You're such a bitch. I know you care about me. This is just me being this way because I'm insecure constantly like going back. And so she's giving you just enough of that positive reinforcement in the mix of all this negativity. Yeah. And, and enough guilt on you telling you like, I know you really, really care about me and I know you mean well, and I know you didn't mean to do this. So it's enough to make you feel terrible into coming back and then apologizing when none of you didn't start any of this in the first place. But she, I think she knows just how far to push something before suddenly turning the tables and saying, I know you love me and I love you so much and you're wonderful so that you don't feel you have a leg to stand on. And all of a sudden the argument's over and she wins. Exactly. And I think that you even mentioned it in one of your emails to me that she was able to flip flop in order to get the responses that she wanted she would say things to evoke certain responses 
that would give her something else to go off of. And it's the constant arguing in circles. And that's a really defining characteristic of people with borderline personality disorder is that constant arguing in circles. It's always black and white. You're either for me or against me. There's no neutral party. Historically, she would constantly vent to anyone who would listen to her about me, about her husband's sisters, about my sister, about anyone. She always put her problems on other people so then they could support her because then if they didn't support her, then they were another person that she would write off. So she would do this thing about like triangulation and that would basically reinforce her own victimhood. I think I read somewhere that they said like a, a good example of manipulation is, yes, I hurt you, but now you hate me. So I'm the real victim. And I felt like that summed it up really well. Yep. The story I'm publishing tomorrow is the exact same thing was, well, I know you did this, but now you're upset at me and now all these consequences are coming at me. So feel bad for me and comfort me through this because I'm having an emotionally hard time. Exactly. Another thing is that she's always would say, well, these are just my feelings. I can't help but feel my feelings or, oh, am I not allowed to feel this way? I think it's important to know that feelings aren't facts. You can feel, you can like look at someone and like look at their facial expression and say, they can look like they're angry at you, but you can't say they're angry at me because feelings aren't facts. And she would constantly try to say, these are facts and these are how these people have wronged me when really it's her own interpretation of the situation. We are responsible for how we choose to act on those. Exactly. One of her biggest flaws is that she does not stop. She's incapable of seeing other people's intentions. You can get hurt. Like I've been, you know, hurt by friend before. A friend makes a comment and I'm like, oh, wow, that was kind of hurtful. But then I think about it, like, did they intend for that to be hurtful? Was that just them not thinking about what they said? Did they not realize how that might come across? She never would stop to think, about what the intentions were behind that. And ha if she had the ability to do that, she would realize that people in her life don't have these cruel or malicious intentions. In the end, I decided to, yeah, cut her off because I was tired of tiptoeing around her emotions. I was exhausted. I just couldn't cope anymore. The circles, it's too exhausting to live with day to day. She's actually pregnant right now. I have heard through the family grapevine. Part of me is, you know, grieving for the relationship that we could have had. A part of me is grieving that I won't be in her kid's life, that my daughter won't have this local cousin. But when I think about how things could be if I had reconciled our relationship, I think about, was I supportive enough during her pregnancy? Am I doing enough postpartum? Did I give her any unsolicited parenting advice? Did I make it seem like I was the expert? And just knowing that by cutting off our relationship, I get to avoid all of the future tiptoeing, I am more and more convinced that I made the right decision. I think it's easy to grieve the idea or the idealistic idea of what it would be like for your daughter to yeah. have a local cousin. But in reality, that's not what it would be at all. Eventually for her, because it would connect her more to Hillary, your daughter. And for you as well. Yeah. Yeah. And kind of I guess back to the whole gift scenario. I don't want her having a relationship with my daughter if she doesn't have a relationship with me. I mean, you can't, especially at my daughter's age right now, she's five and a half. 
we're a package deal. When my daughter is an adult, if she decides that she wants to establish a relationship with Hillary, great. I will tell her to walk cautiously into that relationship. Well, yeah. And you oftentimes kids that age, you don't want her to end up caught in the crossfire. Exactly. It's already clear that Aunt Hillary doesn't, may not be capable of having your best interest in mind. She has her own best interest in mind. I wouldn't want my daughter to learn that this is how family relationships are supposed to look. For sure. I fear for her daughter. I know that being a parent is the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life. I feel like I was pretty mentally stable when I went into being a parent. And then like my whole world kind of crumbled and I was not in a good place for a very long time until I sought therapy. And even then it was a long road to mental like recovery. So I worry for her, not just for her kid that's dealing with this unstable parent, but also if she's like this going into motherhood, I'm worried that what postpartum emotions and hormones are going to do for her and for her marriage. I can only hope that she seeks therapy and takes advantage of resources. I have strong doubts. I know that she's been in and out of therapy. And from what I've heard, she typically lies to her therapist because she wants to gain that type of sympathy. So she has to edit the truth in order to gain the sympathy that she wants. And that's why statistics are so poor when it comes to recovery or true change for people like this. You have to recognize you need to change and you have to be honest about it. And if you're not capable of doing that, you're going to stay the same. It makes it nearly impossible. Therapists can't help you if you don't want them to help you. Right. I'm like, what's the point in paying a therapist if you're going to lie to them or sugarcoat it or, you know, not give them the whole truth? Right. There's that too. I don't even see the point. So I do have one quote that I wanted to share. It was um, that setting boundaries is not a dismissal of another person's worth, but rather recognition of my own. So I'm not saying that I'm setting boundaries because I'm a bad person, but I am setting boundaries because I deserve better than what our relationship was giving me. So I guess turning it into a positive thing and more of like, this is how I'm helping myself rather than saying, this is how that person has wronged me. It's been a little hard to talk about all of this because I feel like, I mean, the boundaries have been helpful, but also just time has been probably the best healing factor in all of this. And so talking about this and digging up these old texts so long after the fact kind of stirred up some emotions that I had not entirely forgotten, but were repressed for a little while. I guess setting these boundaries and keeping these boundaries has not been all easy. I know that it puts a lot of stress on my family. My dad is always like, when are you guys going to make up or settle this? And I've had to reiterate that this isn't a fight that we need to get over. This is a series of a long list of things that have affected our relationship. And I just don't care to pursue a relationship with her. It wasn't until recently that I even told my dad my side of the story. While Hillary would tell everyone her side and how people have wronged her, I would not tell anyone. I would vent to Mel because Mel was also on the receiving end of a lot of this emotional abuse. But I wouldn't tell anyone else because I did not want to put anyone in the middle of this drama because that's not fair to them. But Hillary is trying to, you know, recruit people to be on her side. And I'm like, I just didn't feel the need to do that 
until it was clear that my own father was starting to see me as like the bad person in this situation. And like my aunt uncle were like, oh, well, Mia did this. So I finally had to defend myself, tell the whole story and say, this is not an easy decision. And I understand that this stresses the family out and makes things a little awkward. And I'm sorry if this puts people in an uncomfortable position, but this is what I needed to do. And this is how I needed to protect myself and my family. Well, and this is the reality of drawing family boundaries. Oftentimes that it doesn't just disappear. So I appreciate your honesty because it is an ongoing redrawing of that line. And what some family or other people on the outside may not understand is like you said, this isn't a temporary tiff. This is someone who has established long-term character. Correct. You've seen the long-term evidence and there is no other side. The bad always outweighs the good. So you've seen long-term evidence that others may not have been on the receiving end of, or they're just choosing to accept or be blind yes, to. Absolutely. Would you find, and you can be honest, I was going to ask if you've noticed any lightening of your load or any mental benefit over the last you know, almost year, was it been two year, year and a half of no contact? It's been a year and a half. So after all that time of being free, digging up the texts, did you find and digging back into everything, was it reaffirming of your decision or did it just make things that much harder to relive the abuse? If that makes sense. <laughs> I definitely feel very secure or, you know, I am definitely glad that I have cut her out. As time passes, I'm more and more convinced that I've done the right thing. Did it reflect back to you how far you've come over the past like year and a half? Sometimes like looking back, you realize, oh, this feels like a different life now. And maybe not. Maybe you're still not out of the woods for some things. That's what I was, I was curious about. Honestly, I think that the passage of time is one of the best healing factors. Also, keep in mind that I was never really close with Hillary. I mean, honestly, since she was four years old, I mean, there was probably, we probably had like one really good year where we got along. And that was around when she was 16, where we were actually like friends and I was the cool older sister. Otherwise, it, when it was not a great relationship. And then as an adult, and she's, you know, proven that she's come so far and she's not that bad kid anymore. And it really wasn't until most of the wedding stuff was coming up or actually really when her dad died that started triggering all of this behavior. Yeah, it was really stressful, but I would say it wasn't necessarily like, it was more the amount of brain space it was taking up and that amount of anxiety and ruminating over our situations. And I remember for a certain period of time, all of my therapy sessions were about her. I think I joked with my therapist once about how she should be paying for my therapy because all of this is about her. And as time has passed and less and less, and actually, I, don't, I probably haven't talked about Hillary in therapy for months, it feels so much better because there are so many more important things to preoccupy my time. That's an interesting insight because I think it takes a long time for a lot of, especially if you've grown up in it, to realize how much space this person is taking up in your life. Exactly. When it's normal for so long, then you get free of it and go, oh my goodness, it was like a disease in and of itself. Right. 
And so revisiting these old text messages and like preparing to talk to you, it kind of brought me down that rabbit hole of like, oh, wow, I am so glad I'm not there anymore. I am so glad that I've held these firm boundaries. So there is absolutely no way that things can be misinterpreted or twisted for her benefit. Yeah, that story of you rejecting the gift is huge. Yeah. I think it's so powerful. And I'm really glad you told it the way that you did. Because doing something and I've had this conversation before doing something that is looked at as brave later doesn't mean it was easy in the moment doesn't mean it wasn't absolutely terrifying when the rubber hits the road. And that is one of the things that I really had to emphasize to my dad when I finally told him my side of the story. And I said, that was not an easy decision. And as much as that wasn't an easy decision, it was even harder to actually act on that. And so just know that I'm not just like, oh, I'm not going to receive a gift from, you know, it wasn't like that. I thought a lot about that. And I decided if I want to be firm in my boundaries, I got to draw the line here. I mean, cutting her out in general it takes a lot. I mean, she's still my sister through marriage and she will always be connected to me in that way. But it's something that I I needed to do. Yeah. And good for you. And I hope one day that your daughter, when she's old enough to understand if this is still a dynamic in the family, that she learns from the example that you set way back in the day. I really hope so. You know, unfortunately, I can still see Hillary having like her claws in other people. Her mom, Janet, has always been on her side. She's never been neutral because like I said, if you're neutral, you're against her. And I think that I honestly think that Janet is scared of her. I think that that's kind of what was creeping in the back of my mind. Scared and intimidated. And there's that tie there when you're a parent. I mean, I, I can't. I'm not a parent yet, but from having conversations there, Janet's in an impossible spot. She can't lose her daughter. Yeah, right. I think that she values her relationship with her daughter more than she values the truth. That's profound. Yeah. And Allie, her real sister, her biological sister is still living in Germany. And she has always been level-headed and put together and really anti-drama. I'm sure that Hillary has vented to her and has tried to put her in the middle of things. And Allie refuses to get involved. I will talk to Allie voice call maybe once a month. So in the last year and a half, or really in the last like two years, we never, ever talk about Hillary. She's in Germany now. She's got two kids. She's a single mom a lot of the time because her husband is off doing things military related. (laughs) And I don't want to put that on her. And I know that she doesn't want to be involved in it. I think I, I once mentioned I are having a difficult relationship and she changed the subject. And I took that hint. And I have never mentioned her since. Wow. Because I respect her not wanting to be in it. Interesting how two people can come from the exact same similar upbringing and be so different and have such different perspectives on life. And I wonder if Allie being so far removed from everything has helped keep her perspective clear. I'm sure. And I know 
it's not about picking sides, but I know that she would empathize with me and my perspective because historically, Allie has had her own set of issues with Hillary. I think Allie once was maybe a year ago, Allie was visiting Washington State because her husband had some military thing there and he was in Washington for about three months. So Allie and her child went to Washington for about a month. So since they're in the U.S. for a month, Hillary went out to see Allie in Washington and apparently they fought the entire time. It's really sad to think about because here Allie is with a young child. She's pregnant with her second child. She hasn't seen her sister in a long time. And I am just, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Hillary was picking fights about issues that weren't even there. I mean, I know it's probably, I mean, it's easy to say, but just really impressed by the story. Because I, I, even in this may be just my personality, because I'm kind of like, Mel and that I don't want to make waves. So even, and I keep going back to when you had to set boundaries, it's intimidating when there are elders involved, when there are older family members that are parental figures that you have to stand up to. This isn't just Hillary that you're standing up to. This is somewhat of a familial authority figure as well. So to refuse the gift, to draw the boundaries and to to stand your ground and not defend yourself until you absolutely had to, like to maintain your silence all of that time, knowing that there's a different version of reality being spread out there. I'm sure it's taught you a hell of a lot, but the way that you've ended up handling it in the end, I think will be really, really empowering for others to hear. I'm actually talking to another person that's going through something very similar with a family member, a very similar situation. Yeah, And it's interesting that you both reached out around a similar time and I'm going, there must be more out there that need to hear this. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. At some point, I would hope that my stepmom could, you know, understand my point of view and not see things through Hillary's lens. But she's never asked me my point of view. When I had lunch with my dad and came clean about my side of all of this, he said, oh, well, when I get home, Janet's going to ask me what we talked about. And I said, "Okay, well, what will you tell her? And he says, I don't know. And I actually gave him a script of what to say to her. And I texted it to him. This is a script that you say. Because one thing that I really emphasized with my dad was, I am not asking you to pick a side. I'm not asking you to go against her. What I am asking you to do is recognize that I have made a decision and I want you to support that decision. You don't have to agree with it, doesn't have to be something that you know you would do yourself, but you do have to support me as your adult child. You need to support my decision to not have a relationship with Hillary. And so the script that I gave my dad that he could regurgitate to his wife was that Mia wanted me to, she wanted to tell her side of the story. She just wants me to respect the fact that she doesn't want a relationship with Hillary And that if you want to know more, you can ask her yourself. So without having to do all of this secondhand, I'm saying, I'm happy to share my side with Janet. I don't want it to come like third hand, but you know, I'm always willing to talk to her, but she's not going to reach out. She didn't ask. And how long ago was that? Sorry. That was December. Yeah. So that was about a month. Yeah. Four to six weeks after my daughter's birthday, where I finally was like, all right, I'm clearly being seen as the instigator, 
the person who's starting all of this or the person who's not being reasonable. And I felt like I finally needed to you know, stand up for myself. And like I said, I, I emphasized, I'm not asking you to be on my side, but I am asking you to respect my decision. And has he? He doesn't really talk about it. It doesn't come up a lot in conversation. Family gatherings have always been kind of inconsistent since COVID began. And the fact that I am married and have my in-laws, I normally choose to spend holidays with my in-laws, whom I love. I'm glad at least you have that. Yeah. At least not being pushed back on maybe your dad's way of let, of respecting your decision. Better that it not come up rather than you continually get pushed back. Exactly. And maybe one day Janet will ask and you may never get that. I would hope that one day down the road you'll get the validation you deserve, but in some ways it'll come. And, you know, if I don't, I know that I'm doing the right thing. My husband supports me and that that's all I really need. Thank you. Thank you for being willing to do the work ahead of time too, of looking everything up and pulling that up, because I think it adds a really important facet to telling the story. Hearing someone's own words has a different impact than paraphrasing, like you said, I think before we started to record. So just really wanted to thank you for all that you did to prepare for this. Well, thank you for allowing me to share my story. And I, yeah, I wanted to just make sure that people know that toxic relationships come in all different shapes and forms. And it doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. It could be a coworker or a neighbor or a sister. And I think when we start to recognize some of these behaviors, maybe in our own relationships, we can start to kind of put pieces together maybe a little faster than I did. In doing a little bit of research and, you know, dealing with Hillary and her behavior, I did come across an Instagram account. It's not my own. It's the relationship recovery. That's great. Yeah. And I'll put that in the show notes too. It does mostly focus on like romantic or domestic relationships, but there was one of their slides or one of their posts really resonated with me. They said, you are allowed to terminate toxic relationships. You are allowed to walk away from those who hurt you. You don't owe anyone an explanation for taking care of yourself. I felt like that summed it up really well that I don't need to explain myself until I felt like I did just to defend myself to my family. Like once I reached a certain point, but yeah, this is my way of protecting myself and my family. And, you know, every day that passes, I'm more and more convinced that I'm doing the right thing. Good. And for what it's worth, I think you are. It is, like you said, it's all easier said than done, but that is a really freeing quote that you don't owe anyone an explanation. I think a lot of us, we have a deep-seated need to be understood. And I think in my mind, it's like, well, if everyone understood, then we could just get along because we all mean well, but that's sometimes not a reality that we're gifted with. Yeah, unfortunately. Thank you again for allowing me to share my story. And I hope that this can, you know, help others recognize maybe some of their own toxic family members or people in their lives. While I obviously can't assume or diagnose anyone, it is fascinating to research Hillary's patterns and see how much they do line up with the definition of a vulnerable narcissist. For example, my ex portrayed a lot of the characteristics of an overt narcissist, which is typically very charming. They tend to be obsessed with their public image, which is why they're usually humanitarians or they're very involved in leadership of some kind or charities or ministries. They are obsessed with how they appear to others and they often have larger than life personalities. So 
They're called overt because we can easily see their patterns and their behaviors from the outside, especially if you know what to look for. I've also had friends who've had experiences with covert narcissists, though, who tend to be more subtle because they're more introverted. So while overt narcissists tend to be louder, more arrogant, they command the attention of a room or they're always kind of the life of the party, covert narcissists have a lot of the same tactics. They're just not the center of attention everywhere they go. So oftentimes from what I've learned, it's it's a lot more difficult to detect, um, especially in romantic relationships. Um, someone might not notice that they're actually portraying narcissistic tendencies until much later. They also tend to have a major victim mentality and they think the world owes them. So according to verywellmind.com, vulnerable narcissism is characterized by a lot of insecurity, very low self-esteem, and being hypersensitive to criticism. I found it interesting too that they can become easily overwhelmed and they don't handle stress very well. They also need constant praise and adoration and they are completely unable to empathize. If they do empathize, there is a reason for it. There's a strategy behind it. They can also be very prone to extreme jealousy and envy, which can cause them to become very competitive and it often costs them relationships. The article I found also gives helpful tips for dealing with a vulnerable narcissist if you think you might have one in your life. So I'll definitely put the link in the show notes for you to check out. A huge thank you to Mia for the extra effort she put into compiling her story in the information she provided and for being willing to dive back into this part of her life for all of us. Thank you for being here, for subscribing and for coming along with me as I learn the world of podcasting and this community takes shape. I have so many incredible stories coming next that honestly, I'm having a hard time waiting each week to share the next one with you. If you found value in these conversations and you haven't already left a review, it would mean the world if you took a quick moment to write one or just share this with a friend who would appreciate it. And if you found this episode to be impactful, post about it on Instagram and tag me at space and purpose. I would love to hear from you. 